Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino. Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash covers your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized, soft and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. For the third year, Olay Body is a proud sponsor of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride and supporter of the LGBTQ plus community. So this pride glow with confidence confidence, not just all month, but all year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com slash consulting. IBM. Let's create. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Welcome to It Could Happen Here and the second part of my little mini-series going into the occupation and blockade protests all across Canada that's been happening the past three weeks. For part two, we'll be starting off with a change of scenery. Instead of the loud, cramped streets of downtown Ottawa and the Castle Lake Parliament building, we'll be taking a detour to the snow-covered prairies and oil fields of rural Alberta. As the convoy officially arrived in Ottawa on January 29th, smaller protests against health mandates were also happening across the entire country. One of these many protests was happening in the small city of Lethbridge in southern Alberta. But unlike the majority of other non-Ottawa protests, the one based around Lethbridge didn't turn out to be a simple weekend affair. With hundreds of vehicles, including some semi-trucks, RVs, and farm tractors all gathered together, it was decided to take part in a little mini-convoy of their own. 
But instead of going to a Capitol building, they rolled towards the international border crossing used by truckers in the area. I was able to interview Jen, a, a Lethbridge local who also happens to work near the area of the Alberta border blockade. And they kind of gathered in Lethbridge here and took off about 4.30 in the morning. And so they made it down to the village of Coots, um, which is essentially right on the border. It's uh, the last stop before you hit the border at uh, um, Coots, Alberta, Sweetgrass, Montana. And they blocked off uh, the highway completely, um, heading both uh, northbound and southbound. And they've been camped out since. So it's my understanding that at that point in time, throughout, you know, day one, two, and three, of their protest, um, there was no getting in or out out of the village of Coots, which is a, it is a small village, about 250 residents, um, and it was so bad that not even emergency services could get through. Um, again, blocking both lanes of the highway in either direction, in the ditches, um, and just weren't letting up. And so, so like, are, are are they even driving anywhere or is it, are they just like camped there? Just camped out there, parked. Um, and of course, you know, there's people that will drive down to the border and participate for a couple hours and, you know, turn around and go home kind of thing. But there is that core group, um, the majority of which are actually farmers bringing down like their tractors. And of course there is um, some semi truck drivers who are all a part of it and just, not allowing anyone to get through on either side. So, you know, holding up a lot of, uh, a lot of our supplies, a lot of our um, food and, and things like that. At first, local police and RCMP just waited out the blockade, I guess hoping to see if the people would just get tired of camping out in the cold and then, you know, go home. But after a few days, that possibility seemed less and less likely. Then when the RCMP did start to get more actively involved with kind of managing the blockade, albeit, you know, with a very gentle hand, in extremely stark contrast to how RCMP handles blockades, you know, defending indigenous land. But at that point, it was already kind of too late, and the pacified police action only spread the protests' efforts. On day four of the blockade at the border, um, the RCMP had kind of moved in a little bit and tried to break it up. So some of the, the protesters had kind of broken off and decided to blockade some other areas. So there was a blockade that happened on Highway 3, just outside of uh, the town of Fort McLeod, on the way to the town of Brockett, which would be on the Blood Reserve here in Alberta. Um, they blockaded the highway and wouldn't let anyone through. And then they set up another blockade um, on Highway 23, which of course would be the the next north-south route, given that Highway 3 was now blocked off, uh, Highway 3 going to Highway 2. Um, so they blocked off Highway 23. Um, at There's a, a traffic circle or a roundabout kind of in the middle of nowhere in the highway uh, at the village of Nobleford, sorry, town of Nobleford. And uh, they set up a blockade at the roundabout as well, wouldn't let anyone come in north-south, east-west, didn't matter. Uh, so that was Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday. So they were blocking so then, off like highways two, uh, four, twenty-three, and three. Yeah. So yeah. Effective, effectively shutting down any kind of like travel for like food and supplies for like all four directions. It, pretty much, exactly. Yeah, like there was a lot of uh, 
chatter on social media. Um, we have a local Facebook group for road conditions. And there was a lot of chatter, you know, where do we go? How do we get around this? What back roads should I take? Secondary highways, that sort of thing. And thankfully, you know, there was still, I suppose, some ways to get around it. The RCMP were kind of setting up detours and things like that. But okay. those main routes were blockaded um, on Tuesday, which would have been, I guess, what day is that? February 1st. The static highway blockades preventing traffic in all four directions were mostly a one-day affair. The next Wednesday morning, more effort was put back into the main blockade at the border near Coots, with some folks still participating in the rolling blockades of sorts, you know, on the surrounding highways. So instead of just blocking the roads by staying parked, people in vehicles kept a slow loop of traffic moving through the highway system to clog up travel. And then, like, the contingent at closer to the border has been more consistent, you would say. Yeah, definitely. The the contingent at the border on Highway 4, at, like I said, at Coots, Alberta, they've been set up all the way through since the 29th. Um, there has been days where the tensions are definitely very high, where those protesters are saying, we will not leave until... Um, or we won't even come to the negotiating table until these restrictions are gone. We, like, we won't even attempt. And so the RCMP have been kind of in negotiations with them over the last few days. There's been a couple times where they thought they had resolution to open up lanes of travel to get some of these trucks with goods through. Um, and of course, there's been people stuck in their cars as well for quite a few days without food at that point. Um, the protesters originally had come to an agreement with the RCMP to let people through and then turned around and decided, well, we don't really want to. So that was kind of ongoing from, I'm going to suggest the, the 30th up until about the second, um, on the second, the RCMP had set up a roadblock, uh, at the town of Milk River to, uh, I guess, dissuade the, the locals from coming out and adding to the congestion and adding to the problems. And at one point, um, there was a group of people and videos are on TikTok, they're on Facebook, they're on Twitter, where people are blasting through the barricades, going through the ditch, going through the median, just bypassing it completely to get down to the, the convoy protest. As I record this, the border crossing port of entry near the town of Coots has been largely impassable for over two weeks. It's a major trade hub where millions of dollars worth of agricultural products like meat and feed trade hands each day. The first day had hundreds of vehicles participating in blocking access to the trade route along Highway 4, but after a week of blockading the Alberta-Montana border crossing, around 80 big rigs continued to remain along the highway. For a majority of the time since the 29th of January, vehicle access has been either completely stopped to and from the border, or at least substantially slowed down. The occasional day where vehicles are being let through on one lane of traffic has an estimated 7 hours of stall time in order to get through just that tiny area of road. The blockade of that international port of entry at Coots, and the only 24-7 commercial land crossing in Alberta, is a direct threat to the economic well-being of growers, producers, manufacturers, and many other businesses that rely on the movement of both raw materials and finished goods 
in and out along the Can-Am-X corridor, end quote. Lewington has warned that manufacturing plants in the region will be forced to either reduce or cancel production as their supplies run out and they're unable to get their goods to international markets. This is something farmers and food producers are dealing with as well, as agricultural exports are one of the region's main economic drivers. In 2020, the Lethbridge metropolitan area exported nearly $1.8 billion worth of goods, around 80% of which went to the United States. A vast majority of these exports went through this Coots border crossing. That means for the city of Lethbridge alone, they're facing a roughly $3 million a day impact on the economic damage based on the road and rail travel that must move through that port of entry. The impact is, of course, four or five times larger than if you consider the movement of other Alberta goods in and out of that same north-south corridor. It's only more ironic and frustrating, considering that the idea of shutting down international capitalist trade, you know, costing millions of dollars in losses each and every day, is exactly the sort of thing that these same conservatives would complain that BLM or Antifa would do, you know, like in terms of anti-capitalist action. This is actually more successful in causing damage to capital than really anything I've seen the Canadian left do in recent memory. Now, obviously, police response to a left-wing protest you know, doing similar tactics would probably greatly differ, you know, plus the fact that these people participating in these blockades are the same types of people that talk about their desire to run down protesters in trucks, you know, whenever there's marching in the street or an indigenous road blockade to a new oil pipeline. Nevertheless, on top of the police inability, whether by choice or imagination, to handle the situation, and considering both the conspiracy-fueled political issues around masks, vaccines, and health mandates, and the growing economic problems the blockade is causing, it's not super surprising that the conservative government of Alberta began the process of removing health mandates as the protests dragged on. And unfortunately, it seems like the province is listening, and they're taking it seriously. I, I know... Um... Last night, our premier had gone on Facebook Live and had announced that come Monday, the caucus will vote as to whether or not to scrap it, um, which would mean that, like I said, now there's no longer that requirement to access some of these these services from private businesses. And then ultimately, that would lead us back into our letter rip model that we had last summer. The Monday vote came in the next day, February 8th. Alberta Premier, and premiers are like the you know equivalent of governors for the states, but Alberta Premier Jason Kenney announced that the province's so-called COVID-19 vaccine passport program would end immediately, explaining that the restriction program had served its purpose but is no longer needed since Alberta has passed the peak of Omicron infections about three weeks ago. Capacity limits were also next Tuesday night for venues with capacity limits under 500, including libraries and places of worship. And effective this past Sunday, February 13th, the province will also no longer require masking for children and youth in schools and for any Albertans aged 12 and under in any setting. There is a second phase for Alberta's COVID restriction removal plan. On March 1st, the province is set to remove any remaining restrictions, including the indoor mask mandate, work-from-home requirements, any remaining capacity limits and limits on social gatherings and screenings for youth activities. Jason Kenney did deny that the move has anything to do with the protests from those, you know, demanding the repeal of vaccine mandates of all types across the country, including the blockade that the government had condemned as illegal at the Kutz border crossing, saying, quote, None of that has anything to do with a few trucks participating at the Kutz border crossing. 
um, who added that uh, keeping previous rules in place would invite widespread non-compliance for no purpose, saying, why keep this going on for a few days when we know that in many areas we're already having non-compliance problems? So yeah, um, of course the demonstrations have continued despite Alberta dropping multiple health measures and agreeing to a demand made by a lot of the anti-mandate protesters, which implies that this protest is about much more than simple COVID health measures, right? It points to the movement being more about taking political power and forcing everyone to comply with their own conspiratorial and alienated understanding of the world. As someone who's like living in Alberta, which is, you know, one of the more conservative provinces of Canada, um, how much do you see this kind of, this kind of, you know, spontaneous revolt and resistance to be actually tied to the health mandates? And how much do you see it as more like a revolt around like Trudeau and Canada's like, and Canada's like, um, veneer of liberalism? Like, like, like how, like how much do you, did you see it as more of like a urban rural divide thing that's now just getting pushed into the spotlight because of COVID? Um, or do you think it really is way more about COVID itself? Um, I think that the pandemic has definitely had a role to play in sparking a lot of this, this furor and this, uh, this disconnect. But the, the seeds have been sown for many years through many successive provincial governments and, and much rhetoric that um, the West has always been ignored by the East, by our uh, political institutions in the East, namely Ottawa, our federal government, the seat of our federal government, uh, in favor of, you know, Ontario and Quebec and what they want. So Albertans have always seen themselves with a bit of a martyr complex where we are the economic powerhouse of the country, but we are the ugly stepchild and we are ignored in favor of the wonderful children in the East. And so that, that disconnect and that divide has always been there. And the pandemic has been the catalyst. Um, and of course, you know, whenever there is a federal liberal party that's in, in power, uh, the conservatives feel the conservatives in Alberta and in the West, they feel even more disenfranchised. They feel that, this this government doesn't hear them. They don't listen to them. They don't, you know, follow the whims of, you know, the the dyed in the wool conservatives. And so that rhetoric has built and built and built over the years. Um, and it's all tied into other things as well. It's tied into the economic policies and the policies of uh, the liberal government with, in regards to uh, climate change and carbon tax, and how how that's been hitting. Um, Albertans, you know, they, our province is very heavily dependent upon the oil and gas sector. And it always has been for the last, I'm going to suggest 50, 60 years. And so when they see things like in Ottawa, where they're talking about climate change, and they're talking about, you know, green energy, it makes these conservatives angry, because this has been our bread and butter for years. This is what's fed our families. They don't recognize that, you know, this is this is the path forward. All they hear is, we don't want you. We don't want your jobs. We don't want your products. And they're angry. And this has been the catalyst now where they're just fed up. They're yeah. fed up with, with not being heard. 
Unfortunately, all that built-up anger and resentment towards the government and its leadership is ending up being taken out against just any symbol of liberalism, not really the government directly. You know, w- within this worldview, homophobic attacks can be then thought up as this weird form of punching up because gayness is associated with liberalism, so it's seen as almost this system of power. Even though it's uh, that's obviously backwards, it's this kind of weird backwards thing where you can view like attacking progressive things as an attack on the system. So that means like being racist or being homophobic is this rebellion against you know the system itself. Even though it just ties into all those same systemic issues. Just the other day in Edmonton, there was a uh, a business owner, uh, a, a hair salon owner who's been very outspoken about this freedom convoy and about how she doesn't agree with their messaging and, and their, their ideas. And uh, she was uh, actually hunted down on social media, um, hunted down in person. They found her, someone found her, her business, went to her business and confronted her and assaulted her um, at her business all because she uh, does not support the convoy. And apparently this individual did. Um, you know, we definitely, we definitely see here that, that, um, the feeling is, is that if you are a liberal in Alberta, this is not the place for you. Um, you know, if you, if you believe in, you know, equal rights for everyone, uh, this is not the place for you. If you believe in, uh, the rights of uh, marginalized and minority communities, this is not the place for you. <laughs> and we, I've seen that, you know, in taking part in various protests, I suppose that could be branded as liberal protests, like the Black Lives Matter protests and um, the protests and, and uh, rallies that were held in support of the Indigenous communities uh, last summer upon, you know, the, the news that kind of shook the world regarding um, graves at residential schools. and you know, you see it with the Indigenous communities that protest uh, pipelines on their traditional lands and they block, you know, railways. And these same people that are screaming for jail time and for uh, violence and, and police intervention on these various protests are the same people that are taking part in this convoy. Protesters at the Coots border crossing will now be charged or fined, according to the province and the RCMP. RCMP Deputy Chief Curtis Zablocki said in a news conference during the start of the second week of the Alberta uh, border blockade that police are actively working to defuse the situation at the most important border crossing in Alberta, but are trying to do so peacefully, saying, Make no mistake, there are criminal activities taking place at these protest sites that violate both criminal code and provincial laws. We've seen activities that are both dangerous and reckless and are having a very negative effect on Albertans who live in the area. He then pointed to, you know, dwindling numbers involving the blockade, from a high of around 250 vehicles to begin with, to around 50 vehicles last Tuesday afternoon, as a success of their efforts to this point. But, you know, this isn't convinced everyone since the blockade is still happening, so 
Acting Justice Minister and Solicitor General Sonia Savage called the blockade intolerable and said that those taking part in the demonstration can be charged under several different federal and provincial laws, including the Federal Criminal Code, the Provincial Traffic Safety Act, and the new Critical Infrastructure Defense Act, which was enacted right in the middle of 2020 during the International George Floyd Uprising and the Wasatin Rail Blockades in Canada. Now, I'm going to go on a mini tangent here just because of how terrible this bill is. The bill gives law enforcement and the judicial system extra power to dish out significant monetary fines and extra jail time for actions deemed to interfere with so-called essential infrastructure, quote-unquote. The stated goal of the bill is harsher penalties and charges for, quote, damage or interference caused by blockades, protests, or similar activities that can cause significant public safety, social, economic, and environmental consequences. The Act builds on existing trespassing laws to create offenses for trespassing on, destroying, damaging, and obstructing the use or operation of any essential infrastructure. Also under the banner of essential infrastructure, that includes public and private property, by the way. The bill was obviously aimed at left-wing protest, and specifically eco-defense and environmental protest and or sabotage, as the first two things defined as essential infrastructure in the bill are, quote, pipelines and related infrastructure, and oil and gas production and refinery sites. So yeah, there's also been pressure from government officials to include forfeiture of property in the uh, Commission of Crime through the Civil Forfeiture Act. RCMP Deputy Chief Zablocki said that charges will be coming for those taking part in the protest and could be as simple as the way they are illegally parked on the highway. He did note that the RCMP has attempted to hire local towing companies to move the trucks and other equipment off the road, but have been unable to do so, with the companies citing concerns over damage to their business long term or just safety issues in general. This has also been a huge factor in attempts to deal with the Ottawa occupation. Zablocki said that there are concerns over safety and violence in response to the more aggressive approaches to breaking up the blockade. So far, the main action law enforcement has taken to dissuade people from blocking the border is just giving out tickets and fines for illegal parking. Premier Jason Kenney said that he is supportive of RCMP handling this as they see fit through the means that they already have, and has been supportive of using the, you know, pretty horribly authoritarian Critical Infrastructure Defense Act saying, quote, Last year, we passed the Defense of Critical Infrastructure Act, which gives the police enormous powers and very stiff fines and penalties, including the power of imprisonment. We have made it clear to the RCMP, who is our provincial policing service, that they can and should use all of these powers. They're dealing with a very fluid situation, and I have respect for their judgment. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau addressed the ongoing blockades and protests across the country this past Friday, encouraging demonstrators to leave while also passing the buck on any blame, saying, quote, I want to remind everybody that politicians don't direct police departments to enforce the law. Instead, Trudeau made vague threats around revoking licenses and criminal records for those continuing to protest, saying, everything is on the table because this unlawful blockade has to end and will end. The following is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. I won! Yahoo! 
Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sarge, High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again. Platoon, present cell phone. High Five. High Five. Casino. Casino. Win at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, it'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro Series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The blockade at the Coots border crossing is not the only convoy-aligned protest in Alberta. There have been many demonstrations in basically every major city. Uh, in Calgary, the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees says that frontline healthcare workers, patients, and people living around the Sheldon Kamir Health Center have dealt with protests for weeks. But things have only gotten worse since the truck convoy hit the news. The vice president of the Alberta Union for Provincial Employees said that protesters have blocked the ambulance bay. They have harassed workers and patients as they come to and from the center. They've banged on the windows of the facility and upset people inside, and they have blocked the roads around the center. Moving on to the province of British Columbia, as the second weekend of protest was set to descend on Vancouver the weekend of February 5th, in preparation, fearing attacks would be carried out against healthcare workers like they have in the past, Vancouver's two health authorities issued internal memos telling health workers to hide indoors as the convoy passed through the city and to, quote, refrain from wearing scrubs and or your ID badge outside the hospital during the demonstration. If you do encounter any protesters, please do not engage with them or respond to their questions, and please do not ask protesters to put on a face mask. Similarly, ahead of a protest in Toronto, the Toronto police sent letters to hospitals advising their workers to not wear any clothing or markings that identify them as working in healthcare, fearing attacks by protesters. As the second wave of the convoy arrived during the second weekend of the occupation in Ottawa, some of the on-the-ground organizational structure started to morph and evolve. 
The police estimated around this time that 5,000 people were still protesting in Ottawa, and around 1,000 vehicles were clogging the streets. During the second week of protests, in an effort to improve optics considering the four original organizers' explicit connections to the far right, a new lead organizational public relations and bargaining team was assembled for the group calling themselves the Freedom Convoy. The new pseudo-leadership team consists of Daniel Bulford, a former RCMP officer who was on the Prime Minister's security detail. He quit last year after refusing to get the vaccine and is now the convoy's head of security. Uh, Tom Quiggan, a former military intelligence officer who also worked with the RCMP and was considered one of the country's top counterterrorism experts. And Tom Marizzo, an ex-military officer who, according to his LinkedIn profile, served in the Canadian Armed Forces for 25 years, and now works as a freelance software developer. And just a side note, in terms of, you know, police and former military participating in the protests, there was an organization full of retired police that endorsed the convoy a few weeks ago and said that they have people on the ground there. And uh, just got announced, as, as I'm recording this, that two members of Canada's military counterterrorism unit is under investigation for allegedly taking part in the Ottawa convoy protests. So yeah, that's fun. Um, <laughs> the occupation has been getting more and more organized on the ground the past two weeks, and has been able to keep one step ahead of any action taken against police against the occupation. Even just what the convoy participants have physically built is impressive. In less than a week after the convoy arrived, you started to see wooden structures being built around the roads and a growing stockpile of propane and diesel fuel. There is an impressive amount of tents and wooden structures used for kitchens that local organizers have set up, and a whole supply chain has sprung up across the city to keep these people fed, working, and protesting. I'm now going to quote a good article in the CBC by Judy Trenn. Quote, the group is set up not only near the parliament in Ottawa, but they have also built two encampment areas where they carry out logistical and supply work. Recent reporting has painted a picture that these areas are far more organized than widely thought. The group is also trying out new tactics, such as attempting to clog up traffic at the Ottawa airport. Other tactics like swatting have been reported as well. Ottawa police say they're aware of a concerted effort to flood our 911 and non-emergency police reporting lines, tweeting that this endangers lives and is completely unacceptable. Determined to not be outdone by their fellow protesters in the West, after the second wave arrived, the members of the Ottawa convoy organized a way for the convoy occupation to stay, but also put up a border crossing blockade of their own. Starting Sunday, February 6th, Scores of truckers blocked the Ambassador Bridge connecting Windsor, Ontario to Detroit, Michigan, disrupting the flow of auto parts and other products between the two countries. While this protest has been conducted more by pickup trucks than big rigs, it has been holding up the lanes. The bridge is the busiest U.S.-Canada border crossing and a key cog in both the U.S. and Canadian economies, as it carries around 25% of trade between the two countries. The effects of the blockade there were felt rapidly. The bridge regularly carries around $360 million a day in two-way cargoes. But traffic is limited by its 1929 physical footprint. There's just two lanes each way with no shoulders and antiquated customs booths, with the northern side just emptying out into the city streets. 
The bumper-to-bumper demonstration forced auto plants on both sides of the border to shut down or scale back production. The halting of trade has bottlenecked automaker Ford's ability to get parts from the U.S. to its Canadian plants in Windsor and Oakville. Ford has shut down the doors of its Windsor plant and reduced the work schedule in Oakville. Ford said in a statement, The interruption on the Detroit-Windsor bridge hurts customers, autoworkers, suppliers, communities, and companies on both sides of the border. We hope the situation is resolved quickly because it could have widespread impact on all automakers in the U.S. and Canada. Automaker Toyota said that its three plants in Ontario closed for the rest of the week because of parts shortages, and production has also been curtailed in Georgetown, Kentucky. More on the U.S. side of things, GM, Jeep, and Honda all had hours cut and assembly lines shut down at their factories across Michigan and Ohio. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmore urged Canadian authorities to quickly resolve the standoff, saying it's hitting paychecks and production lines and that is unacceptable. The federal public safety minister has said that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police reinforcements are being sent to Windsor, Ottawa, and to Coutts, Alberta, where the other border blockade is happening. With political and economic pressure mounting, Windsor Mayor Drew Dilkins announced that the city would seek a court injunction to end the occupation, saying that the economic harm is just not sustainable and it must come to an end. On Thursday, February 10th, the Biden administration urged Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government on Thursday to use its federal powers to end the truck blockade at the other side of the Detroit border. Hundreds of millions of dollars worth of products have been held back for days as 50 to 60 vehicles and around 100 anti-mandate protesters camp out on the main road that leads on and off the bridge. And yes, it is ironic that the same people who are trying to sell Canadians fake stories about failing supply lines and empty shelves are now causing those supply lines to fail and causing those shelves to go empty. The irony is not lost on me, but it may be lost on the convoy participants. Throughout writing these episodes, I was fortunate enough to get to talk to multiple people who have been on the ground in downtown Ottawa. One such of these peoples is Peter Smith, an investigative journalist for the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. We recorded our conversation, and I'm going to include some audio clips throughout the rest of the episode. We started off by discussing what made this protest movement pop off in this specific time and place. I do think it was maybe capitalizing on a moment, but also a fair amount of luck. You know, since 2019, the same organizers have attempted to put together other convoys, you know, generally never rising to the amount of attention that they had in 2019. Um, You know, this convoy was also planned long before they specifically started focusing on truckers. And then it was it was a galvanizing issue. It it resonated with people who were frustrated with the Trudeau government. and just their their handling of of health measures, as well as just became a like a vehicle for expressing their general dissatisfaction with their own provinces. Like most of our health mandates are provincial. Like the the Alberta government is handing down what's happening in Alberta. Um, so it's it's not just it's not just a a federal issue, but coming down here and occupying the streets of Ottawa, and then now we're seeing occupying. Most of our major cities, um, you know, ones like Winnipeg get significantly less attention, but are incredibly disruptive locally. Um, and in some cases, more kind of incendiary than the one that we have out here, where, you know, participants and organizers are desperately trying to 
clamp down on on any individuals who's engaging in harassment or uh all or is more common blaming it on liberal plants um yeah it just be, it became this kind of expression of all of the frustration and very quickly drew attention even from people who'd been dismissive of it very early on because of some of the organizers um once it really started to galvanate galvanize attention and of course money uh yeah, people couldn't couldn't stay away I mean, to the point that we even have mainstream conservative politicians now getting on board with it, including the man who's very likely to be the future leader of the conservative party here. I mean, we're in a very unique moment. Um, you know, our, our far right and kind of conspiracy culture in Canada has also been getting better at organizing over the course of the pandemic. Once again, like all major cities have and many small towns continue to have anti-mandate um, anti-lockdown protests. We usually refer to them as the COVID conspiracy movement just because of how and heavily, heavily informed it is by conspiratorial thinking. Um, so it's, it's like you had a large amount of people kind of spending the past two years in like a on the ground boot camp of how to organize within these cities and how to get people's attention. And of course, like, like a lot of the far right here, it, it had fragmented. There was a lot of infighting. Uh, and then, yeah, you know, once there became a central point that was was galvanizing a lot of attention, it started receiving international attention. You know, there's been some questions about the source of of some of the money, but certainly the initial totals seem to be organically Canadian. Yeah, um, it just became too big to fall apart. Essentially, at least at this point, um, there has been some spats of infighting, but mostly, you know, the most polarizing figures are either just keeping their head down or in some cases even choosing to stay away from the main events so as not to be a distraction. Um, there's a lot, one of the lines I see a lot is like, this is the moment. This is for all the marbles. Um, so there's a huge amount of importance being placed on that. What actually happens, like whether they're able to paint what we've, the, like the actual rolling back of mandates that we were already starting to see before the convoy began um, as some type of victory for them. Um, or if this leads to further disillusionment, you know, we don't really know at this point, but I think this moment is going to be a, a propaganda tool um, and kind of a, a point of, I think it's going to be a propaganda tool and a, like a point of motivation for a long time. From your like both on the ground stuff and just from monitoring stuff online, what do you think like the actual actionable intention was once they arrived in Ottawa? Like, do you think they had a clear plan of what to do, or was it more like, let's go here and then we'll figure things out? Well, initially there there was a initially there was a memorandum of understanding which laid out kind of the, the points of what the initial organizers were hoping to accomplish, something they called Operation Bear Hug, um, which includes having the governor general and our Senate, both of whom are unelected, uh, dissolve parliament and reform the government immediately after we had a federal election. Um, since then, the message has evolved. Like They're trying to stay very, very like on script with this just being about freedom, um, this just being about mandates. You know, initially there was a lot of attempts to even get people to, to stop mentioning the vaccine, though those seemed to kind of 
fallen by the wayside, especially when you start looking at the speakers. It is interesting to kind of wonder what the actual goal is. They're, they've started meeting with public officials. You know, there is some type of negotiation going on. Um, ostensibly, the goal is just to have these border restrictions lifted on people, on truckers who are unvaccinated returning from the U.S. You know, the obvious thing is to point out that the U.S. still has a very similar policy and reversing it here would have no impact um, on their ability to to avoid this quarantine. But um, it seems like the goals are fairly murky, and that's almost deliberate because then they can declare victory kind of when it suits them. Ambiguity around protest goals, demands, and purpose itself can be a useful tactic. The crime think zine slash article titled Why We Don't Make Demands makes such a case. Now, I don't have time to summarize it here, but I recommend you give the article a look if you're interested in this train of thought as an intentional tactic. But on the flip side, you know, vague and directionless protest without much of a focus on a specific goal can also cause protests to peter out without having any lasting impact on the world. A discussion worth having is how the individual people that make up the convoy participants have been convinced to take part in an occupation protest, and how what is considered valid political action has broadened in their own heads, if they are the ones doing the action, of course. Because from their point of view, since they are doing it, the cause must be valid, and therefore the action is justified. In 2020, we had the, the Wet'suwin rail blockades. Um, that was put on by various members of our First Nations and then uh, people who supported them. You know, the same politicians that are meeting um, with the truckers, embracing them, uh, saying that uh, our current prime minister is demonizing them um, by kind of casting them as undesirables. We're, we're, you know, we're actively calling people sitting on train tracks uh, as terrorists who are disrupting our economy. Um, obviously, in the context of the pandemic, pandemic that's very different because there has been kind of mass disruption to to our economy but this kind of picking and choosing of of suiting the narrative to court far-right voters seems to be popular you know how conservatives typically aren't seen as the protesting type right conservatives are supposed to be the type of people who drive by the protest and yell get a job they're not the ones who are out in the streets picketing but first of all that's not really true. Historically, in just the past 100 years, there's always been conservative protests for, you know, regressive and reactionary goals. Also, conservatives have been much better at organizing off the street for their political policies, specifically around, like, abortion or Christian dominionism, anti-queer legislation, or recent stuff around anti-CRT and just the mainstream racism denial that's been propagated through media. But even if there is historical precedent for conservative protest, bridging the gap of what is seen as valid political action in the minds of these convoy attendees did still take place over just the past few years. Just the past two years specifically, there's been so much conservative protests around COVID. A whole bunch of the people at the Ottawa protest, probably five years ago, would have never seen themselves going to protest in the Canadian capital, right? Like, if you told them a few years ago that in 2022... You're going to drive all these kilometers to the parliament to camp out in the cold for weeks to protest against the government and its rules for helping not spread the deadliest pandemic in a century. They would have probably laughed you out of the room. So 
what is the logical progression of conservative people who generally, you know, look down on any type of protest, especially Occupy-style protests, to the point where they are driving all the way to the Capitol to camp outside the building to honk horns day and night? A lot of that political change the past few years correlates to the pandemic, to the social isolation, and the great opportunity for the fast spread of conspiratorial politics that it offered. Over the course of the pandemic, there's been this huge blending of rhetoric online, and especially in Canada, this kind of villainization of the other side. Increasingly, less and less criticism against the current government is less based on its policy and more based on its figurehead and the image of Trudeau as a globalist. Politics as opposition to whatever Trudeau and the liberals are doing. The result of that is just a whole bunch of escalation, because you have to keep always being antagonistic and always being contrarian, no matter what the opposition actually does. The thing is, a lot of the people who used to just be kind of more general conservatives, as they get radicalized online and get caught up with far-the-right extremist elements, most of them still view themselves as, like, the norm. They don't think they've politically changed the past five years, but if you look at their rhetoric and actions, they definitely have, kind of substantially. But they still view themselves the same way they would when they were voting for Stephen Harper. Unless you're a self-described extremist, you typically view everything that you do and say as normal and reasonable. Like, you, you are the actual normal. Everyone else is shifted either way relative to you. During our talk, I asked investigative journalist Peter Smith on his opinions about what sorts of political and social factors have allowed the occupation and blockades to have enough numbers to last and continue on so long. Um, kind of having spent a lot of time on the ground at the Ottawa convoy, just talking to people as like a, as a normal guy without my press hat on. Um, it does seem like one, there's a lot of owner operators there. Like when it comes to the trucks themselves, yeah. um, these people are the business owners. Yeah. Um, or like very close, like they're kind of independent contractors. Exactly. Um, I think there was a, sur a report that came out showing a survey that done that like roughly half of the people there were unemployed. Okay. Um, so like the financial promise of all the money raised may have been a big draw. Like not to say that these people don't legitimately believe the reasons. No, yeah, absolutely. Um, but it created an, an incentive. Um, but then having roughly half of them, you know, still having jobs, you know, it comes down to a little bit more than just money. Like it's about actual belief, actual ideology. Um, but it is interesting for a large amount of people who are extremely worried about supply lines, about people having enough food initially um, to kind of creating this self-fulfilling prophecy where, where that seems to be the main tactic is just to grind as much to a halt as they can using as, much, as many people as they can muster. And then just the kind of general hands-off approach that law enforcement is taking with them um, has allowed them to, to organize better, to evolve their tactics, to be more effective. Um, like I certainly don't think a policing solution is is what's going to solve this. And, you know, there's a lot of calls for that, which is, I think, just going to result in a lot of people getting hurt in the street. Um, but, but yeah, like, it is interesting that how it kind of, it came from the West mostly and then landed in Ottawa and then kind of spread out from there. Once people realized it was effective, once people realized you know, there was, there was safety in these numbers. Um, it's, it's drawn 
uh, it's drawn so many people to it. It's it's honestly shocking. It's it has been shocking, like truly, how quickly it has spread, and how effective it has been. It's not January sixth in the sense that like people are running around Parliament and like trying to find you know every liberal politician, but in the sense that it's a large amount of people motivated by conspiracy. Yeah, that's where I view the parallel. And because they and honestly the the actual sincerity of it poses more of a political threat than the animosity of January 6th. Um, in terms of like long-term like actual social change and using this type of like occupation as a tactic, the mm. more sincere you are, the more of an actual political threat you can be in the long term. Because yeah, if they start if they storm parliament, then it'll get shut down in a day and then they'll be demonized and then then the problem is over. Right. Um, at least at least in the short term, right? Um, but if you actually like do this sincerely and actually get people to buckle under pressure then that's like actual successful politics like that is you're you're actually doing politics objectively well um and that's more interesting to point out the problem isn't protesting like protesting as as a concept isn't the issue the problem isn't even blockades like no the problem's not blockades either you know all these things are just tactics and tactics are value neutral um usually you know it's until you get to the genocide when it's usually that's a kind of kind of a kind of a downer generally <laughs> um but in general i, I kind of view protest tactics as more value neutral it's about kind of what the underlying cultural motivation is and what they want the results to be and even still you know some of the some of the points they have are not completely invalid um but once it gets caught up in a culture war kind of mindset, it's like you have to oppose it just because they're on the other side. Um, mm-hmm. So I kind of want to talk about like the reasons why they are actually kind of bad, like like for like on like a very sincere way, but then also kind of point out some things that are like, yeah, maybe the, see, these are things we should consider, and it shouldn't take this type of occupation to have us re- reconsider some of these rules and regulations. Yeah, like completely, like. I I think there's no issue with having being uncomfortable with mandates. Um, Like, even if you feel they're necessary, like being uncomfortable with the amount of of state power that is being accumulated. Um, You know, in, in Canada, you know, there have been sweeping changes to the way that we live our life. Like I I know that that's been universal, um, but there, there is not a province that hasn't really suffered, like hasn't really impacted people's lives dealing with COVID. and you know this is this is one of the the biggest issues when trying to point out disparate responses in policing. Um, well, it's like oh, it's like so we should treat the convoy participants like they treated everybody else, and it's it's like no, like like you know the the police chief of Ottawa got a lot of shit for saying he doesn't think there's a policing solution, and it's like I I do agree with the criticism of him because he has attempted to kick responsibility to just about every other level of government available um but dragging people out like towing their vehicles and taking away their livelihood and dragging a lot of people out into the street and then into jail is is not going to resolve these issues no um and if anything it could could bring more support like again there was another report today that uh i think it's 25 percent of people who have camped out have children with them like, you know, this is going to be an incredibly traumatic experience. It's going to help radicalize more people and it's going to lend credence to their cause if they just go in and bust heads. And it's like, if the main focus of this convoy had been in Toronto, 
where we have an incredibly aggressive police force when it comes to like homeless encampments, for instance, um, you know, I think the result could have been very different. Yeah. And then like, because a lot of the stuff around the question of governments and stuff, you know, it's, it's, it's the type of things I can agree with, with like right wing libertarians is, yeah, you do have a lot of points I can sympathize with around the state and around control but the way you address them don't actually address the underlying power structures which give the state legitimacy in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the world that you kind of want in the end is still a world full of hierarchies, just hierarchies that make your life easier. Right, skew um, and skew in your favor. Just like asking for two unelected bodies to replace your democratically elected government. It's like, yeah, I mean, I, we had 10 years of Stephen Harper. Like, um, people were unhappy and extremely critical of that government from the center and from the left. But, you know, there wasn't this kind of broad support for the idea that that government was illegitimate, which is, I think, what we see mostly today, which is the most disturbing and kind of anti-democratic part of the whole pie. Yeah. And that's the kind of what the last thing I want to talk about is like, what do you see? Like, because eventually people will go home either out of exhaustion, it'll maybe fizzle away like a, like the protests in Portland did. Maybe they'll eventually police will kind of clear out small sections. Um, like who, who knows? But like uh, it, this is not going <laughs> knocking on wood here. But this this isn't gonna last like a year, right? Like it's not it's not gonna like they're I don't think they're gonna have yeah. thousands of people camped out in front of the government forever. Um. So what? But what are the actual long-term political ramifications of this? Because we already saw the leader of the Conservative Party step down. Um, so like, I want to talk about like specifically with the guy who's probably more most likely to take his place. How this just does kind of play into the more negative aspects of the convoy is like how they're going to use this as a political symbol and a political tool to push for policies and forms of government and actions that will end up hurting a lot of. Uh, and it will end up hurting a lot of people um, in terms of, you know, how, how it's going to be used in propaganda and rhetoric. Yeah, well, certainly if we have, um, you know, strong legal ramifications put in place that make it easier for provinces, the federal government, whatever, to crack down on, on protests in general, um, which I think is something that might be very attractive to our current government. Um, you know, that's going to have obviously very far reaching effects. You know, one of our opposition parties, um, which is, you know, generally further to the left than than the liberals, the NDP, um, their leader was proposing ways to stop foreign funding from coming in to supply to the protests. Um, you know, once again, we we had protests a couple of years ago by indigenous people and people who support indigenous movements. Um, you know, that, that raised money using the same platforms and the same methods. You know, so I worry about like one, the legal ramifications, like two, just this, this idea, like if the government does crack down very hard, this idea of real grievance and alienation that the West has already been struggling with. Like we've had yeah. a real renewed separatist movement, not from Quebec, um, where it's generally been the most successful, but from the Western provinces, you know, not, not really getting close to obtaining any real political power, but, you know, kind of steadily gaining support. Polling has shown that, you know, there is a real feeling of Western alienation. They don't feel represented. And, you know, a lot of the ways our government are set up 
actually makes that true. Um, yeah, ultimately, as people, I think, become more and more disenfranchised, um, when government action begins to kind of justify imagined ideas of oppression, um, you're going to have a real hardening. And since the government in power is a progressive one, is or at least one that espouses, you know, tries tries to reach for progressive values, you know, there's a good chance that those issues are going to get caught up with what is just like a quote unquote leftist agenda. Whereas up until probably a decade ago, those things were very much seen as kind of inherent Canadian values that were embraced by both sides. Um, the current candidate for leadership, he hasn't been, he hasn't won the seat in the the Conservative Party yet, but Pierre Poliver has kind of always flirted to some degree with um, far-right talking points. Like I don't, I, I specialize in hate groups. I don't want to make too many pronouncements about mainstream conservatism. Um, but even by kind of members of the very far right, who often have turned against the Conservative Party over the course of the pandemic, he's often referred to as the adult in the room. Um, and while still a politician, kind of their best bet for getting someone in office that they would actually like to see in power, um, which could, I mean, could be interesting to see how they, if there will be continued support for the PPC in two to four years. Um, but yeah, I just think there, there is a real hardening of the right. And it's not like the Overton window is shifting. It's just like it's getting wider. Like more and more is being incorporated as opposed to it just going one direction or another. That disenfranchisement is, is a driving factor. Like they view this populist kind of uprising or upswelling um, that they're seeing now as a function of democracy or like part of how democracy is supposed to function. So again, like if if you talk to them, they will quite earnestly say, many of them anyway, will quite earnestly say, like, this is about freedom. This is about having my voice heard. Um, yeah. But I without mean, that... a lot of thought about how that will actually function in a on a broader scale. I mean, that just plays into like alienation as a as like a general concept, right? Like we're so disconnected from everything about our lives, disconnected from, you know, the way we work, disconnected from our interactions with other people to be disconnected from like you know money or food you know it's all this mm. stuff and like disconnected from like politics is that the only way that you can actually f something that feels real the only thing that actually feels like reality is going to do this thing in person because everything else is so disjointed um it's they, they, there is so much of that space in between the phenomenon and the actual thing that right. is it leaves you wanting something but you don't know quite what so yeah you're gonna drive to ottawa because that feels so much more real that feels like actual politics and it kind of is like that's this like that's 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 always when it feels like when you're when you're like when you're when you're protesting it's like yeah i'm actually doing politics now because that's how everything gets set up is by that type of like you know getting people on the ground yeah so and it's, I, it's such a more personal way to engage than you know putting a note into a box every two to four years like yeah i imagine it does feel substantive and then i mean voting power is centered in our urban centers as well so there is there is a real disconnect with the representation that that rural people again western the western provinces receive oh! 
High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumber5Casino.com. High Five Casino. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, it'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro Series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV is. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. want to specifically talk about police response and the ways this occupation and blockades being handled will affect the political organizing in the future. I think initially the majority of police concerns and what they were actually focused on responding to was fears around the convoy storming parliament or if the the convoys were going to do something exceedingly violent, which I don't think was necessarily the convoy's actionable objective from the beginning. If you listen to what they were actually saying, it, will, it was more about choking out the city and applying pressure on government officials. But the initial nonviolence, coupled with the shield of being conservative white and middle class, whom you know, the police are less likely to react as brutally to, allowed time for the infrastructure to rise that let the protest turn into a full-scale occupation of a North American city. The first real action police took against the occupation was on the evening of Sunday, February 6th. Demonstrators were gathering for dinner, then dozens of officers in riot gear carrying munitions launchers raided a camp after footage of stockpiles and gas cans went viral days previous. In an attempt to cut the supply route, police say they seized around 3,700 liters of fuel and two vehicles, including a diesel tank. But within hours of the raid, Protesters from the camp broadcast reassurance to their supporters and continued to organize, just utilizing smarter tactics. The day after the police raid, protesters continued to deliver fuel to downtown truckers 
as they executed a coordinated effort to exhaust police resources. Hundreds of demonstrators carried fuel cans, some empty, some not, just right past officers who mostly stood and watched as hundreds of people trolled them with decoy cans, while others smuggled in more fuel within the safety of the large crowd right in the middle of the day. Ottawa Police Deputy Chief Steve Bell said the demonstrators were filling cast cans with water to distract officers, attempting to subvert their efforts, and that one officer was swarmed by the crowd while trying to confiscate fuel. To date, police have made around 30 arrests and issued thousands of tickets, launched more than 80 criminal investigations, and 400-plus hate incidents are also being investigated. Earlier this week, Peter Soli said that the force would turn up the heat as police started to crack down on anyone bringing material aid, such as fuel, to protesters. Police dismantled a protest camp near the Redu Canal downtown and a fuel operation on the Coventry Road, east of the core. But some trucks and demonstrators continued to occupy downtown streets and the staging area on Coventry. Police say that they need an additional 1,800 more reinforcements from federal and provincial governments to help end the crisis. The entire Ottawa police force numbers only 1,200, but has been supplemented with several hundred officers from the Ontario Provisional Police and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, as well as local police forces elsewhere in Ontario over the past few weeks. Near the end of the second week of occupation, Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario, declared a state of emergency for the entire province, warning protesters demanding an end to pandemic restrictions that if they do not disband, there will be consequences and they will be severe. He said that those who continue to impede the movement of people and goods could face fines of up to 100000 Canadian dollars, up to a year in prison, and the revocation of their driver's license. During the cold morning of Sunday, February 13th, police largely cleared the portion of the self-styled Freedom Convoy blocking the Ambassador Bridge U.S.-Canada border crossing on the road between Windsor, Ontario, and Detroit. The clearing marked a week since the border blockade had begun. Police made several arrests and towed vehicles in connection to the demonstration that had disrupted traffic and the flow of goods. After law enforcement enforced the injunction enacted two days prior, ordering truckers and their supporters to leave and ticketed and towed vehicles, a defiant core of some two dozen protesters had remained on foot as temperatures dropped below freezing. But around 9.30 local time, police had mostly cleared the streets to the bridge and were deployed around the area. It was unclear, however, how large police presence would remain to prevent vehicles and demonstrators from returning there. Meanwhile, in the capital of Ottawa, police grappled with an influx of anti-government and anti-vaccine mandate demonstrators for a third straight weekend, despite both local and provincial officials declaring states of emergency. Law enforcement appeared to be unsuccessful in attempts to get the Freedom Convoy protesters to leave by threatening them with fines, prison time, and the loss of their licenses. Police have not made any large effort to disrupt the convoys in Ottawa, similar to what they did on Sunday in Windsor, Ontario. Ottawa police say that over 4,000 demonstrators were in the city throughout the day. However, on Monday, February 14th, police action was taken against the blockade at the Coots border crossing that had shut down cross-border travel for almost three weeks. The RCMP said in a press release early Monday morning that they became aware of a small organized group within the larger protest at Coots, which led to 11 arrests. 
They say that they had information that the group had access to a cache of firearms and ammunition in three trailers. During the raid, officers seized long guns, handguns, multiple sets of body armor, a machete, and a large quantity of ammunition and some high-capacity magazines. Later that day, two other arrests were made in connection to the blockade. Following the police raid and the 13 arrests, some other organizers of the protest said a decision was reached voluntarily to leave the Coots area around Tuesday morning. The organizers made a statement saying, quote, We were infiltrated by an extreme element. Our objective was to be here peacefully. To keep that message going, we want to peacefully leave Coots and return to our families. As of uh, Tuesday the 15th, both the border crossing at the Ambassador Bridge to Detroit and the Coots port of entry to Montana are open once again. As the border opened back up in Coots, the previous blockade protesters and police embraced each other with hugs and handshakes. Meanwhile, on Monday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act for the first time in Canadian history to give the federal government and police extra powers to handle the ongoing blockades and protests against pandemic restrictions. Here's how the measures we're taking today will help get the situation under control. The police will be given more tools to restore order in places where public assemblies can constitute illegal and dangerous activities, such as blockades and occupations as seen in Ottawa, the Ambassador Bridge, and elsewhere. These tools include strengthening their ability to impose fines or imprisonment. The government will designate, secure, and protect places and infrastructure that are critical to our economy and people's jobs, including border crossings and airports. We cannot and will not allow illegal and dangerous activities to continue. The Emergencies Act will also allow the government to make sure essential services are rendered, for example, in order to tow vehicles blocking roads. In addition, financial institutions will be authorized or directed to render essential services to help address the situation, including by regulating and prohibiting the use of property to fund or support illegal blockades. And finally, will enable the RCMP to enforce municipal bylaws and provincial offenses where required. This is what the Emergencies Act does. The Emergencies Act, which replaced the War Measures Act in the 1980s, defines a national emergency as a temporary, urgent, and critical situation that seriously endangers the lives, health, or safety of Canadians and is of such proportions or nature as to extend the capacity of authority of a province to deal with it. The unprecedented deployment of the Emergencies Act gives police, quote, more tools to restore order in places where public assemblies constitute illegal and dangerous activities, such as blockades and occupations, according to Trudeau. But the thing is, police already had all the tools they needed. The illegal occupations and blockades were already illegal. They just didn't want to enforce it. You can look at how the Coots protesters and the police are hugging, right? This isn't a matter of having not enough tools. All this does is set a terrible precedent for using this type of extra power in the future to respond to protests. 
because the cops are still going to take a very gentle approach if they ever are forced to take physical action against the Ottawa occupation. While using the extra powers of the Emergencies Act, the Finance Minister of Canada also announced on Monday a broadening of the laws regarding financing of crime and terrorism to now include crowdfunding, and also extra surveillance measures against people who donate and use crowdfunds for criminal acts, including illegal protests. As part of invoking the Emergencies Act, we are announcing the following immediate actions. First, we are broadening the scope of Canada's anti-money laundering and terrorist financing rules so that they cover crowdfunding platforms and the payment service providers they use. These changes cover all forms of transactions, including digital assets, such as cryptocurrencies. The illegal blockades have highlighted the fact that crowdfunding platforms and some of the payment service providers they use are not fully captured under the Proceeds of Crime and Terrorist Financing Act. Our banks and financial institutions are already obligated to report to the Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Centre of Canada, or FinTrack. As of today, all crowdfunding platforms and the payment service providers they use must register with FinTrack and they must report large and suspicious transactions to FinTrack. This will help mitigate the risk that these platforms receive illicit funds, increase the quality and quantity of intelligence received by FinTrack, and make more information available to support investigations by law enforcement into these illegal blockades. That's kind of all the information I have at the time of recording. So now I'm going to talk more about the potential political effects that this protest could have, not just on Canada, but also in how we view protest in general. So the actual result of liberal media framing this type of protest as scary terrorism is laying the groundwork for brutal police actions against massive, mostly non-violent and tactically smart protests to be more normalized across Canada. An extremely brutal police response and harsh charges are unlikely to be leveled against a protest made up of these conservatives, but will absolutely happen to any future progressive social justice cause, especially if they use Occupy-style tactics. The more powers police obtain and the legal precedents that are set will have long-lasting implications with legal consequences that will always come down harder on the left than they do on the right. Police will do a bare minimum to resolve this conservative so-called freedom protest, but then will use it as a justification to grab greater resources and power and use this movement to justify severe preventative protest suppression in the future. If liberals can widely celebrate and thirst for harsh crackdowns of a protest made up of white conservatives and their families, calling the entire movement a criminal enterprise and cheering on as police steal property of the protesters, despite what the majority of these protesters are doing, just being kind of camping on the side of a street, think of all of the ways that consent can be manufactured to clamp down on any future large-scale protest, especially when the movement isn't made up of a bunch of regular white people and their kids, and instead it actually challenges the underlying power structures that prop up white Canada, 
instead of just reinforcing it, like the convoy does. I have a similar issue around all of the hubbub around the fundraisers, right? Restricting where crowdfunded resources can come from will only result in future political social justice causes to be negatively impacted, whether that be bail funds or supporting indigenous blockades from out of country. On February 10th, the Canadian federal government effectively shut down the Freedom Convoy's Give, Send, Go fundraiser, making it illegal for the funds to be used in any way. Governments setting the precedent for shutting down protest crowdfunding is not a good thing. Now any future protest bail funds and crowdfunding for the Wasetan blockade will always be in jeopardy. I'm by no means saying that action against a generally hateful, anti-democratic, and dangerously conspiratorial protest isn't justified, but just when governments start using it as reasons for more power and creating new precedents for years in jail and hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines for an occupation protest, like, that shouldn't be cheered on, because those things will only come back to bite progressive causes a lot harder than they will be used against the conservative convoyers. There has increasingly been attempts at counter-protesting the Ottawa convoy and the various convoy-inspired protests around the country many of which faced harsher police response than any of the convoy protests have up until this point. But those community-led counter-protesting efforts are vital. The Ram Ranch resistance actions are still ongoing. On Sunday night, the URL for the Give, Send, Go fundraiser was hacked by activists who redirected the page to a video of the Frozen song Let It Go, accompanying a manifesto condemning the fundraiser and the convoy. And that's great. That is wonderful counter-protesting. That is very, in terms of effective ways to shut down fundraising efforts for a basically pseudo-fascist, you know, anti anti-democratic conspiracy-led movement, that's great, right? And this was hours after it was officially confirmed via data leaks that around 56% of Give, Send, Go donations for the convoy came from the United States. Around 30% came from Canada, and then 2% came from the UK. Although I think it's worth mentioning that for the initial $10 million GoFundMe, we only have confirmation that around $33,000 came from the United States. To understand how the convoy slash blockade is working, it's useful to get away from painting all of the participants themselves as extremists, because the fact that regular Canadian right-wingers are what's making this possible has a whole bunch of other implications that people aren't really talking about. I'm seeing a lot of Canadians who are just really upset about how this convoy is affecting cities and the country as a whole, which, you know, reasonable. I am, it, it is a thing to be upset about. But then just jumping to insist that it must be inorganic, I think is kind of faulty. Focusing instead on theories around foreign influences and astroturf organizing, elements of which have been present, sure, but also the impact of which has, I think, kind of been overblown. But even if those things are completely true and major factors, that still overlooks the fact that there are thousands of real Canadians from around the country camped up in Ottawa. And the majority of those Canadians sitting in the streets are not Nazis, right? Or really even extremists. And most of those people are not receiving personal funding from dark money billionaires. They consider themselves regular working class freedom-loving Canadians. It's much harder to reconcile a homegrown movement full of participants that have slid further to the right over the past two years due to rampant online misinformation coupled with ineffectual government support during the pandemic. It's 
easy to point to so-called organizers who are definitely more fashy, large-scale sketchy donations, and far-right media figures who are trying to drum up support for the convoy. But those things alone don't get many of thousands and thousands of people and their kids to drive cross-country for a cause that they earnestly believe in. The years of political alienation and disenfranchisement that caused that to happen is a lot harder to solve than just cracking down on organizers and donations. Watching homegrown reactionary street politics that one day can grow into an actual far-right populist and fascist movement is a lot more frightening than the idea of overseas astroturfed organizing. Not that those things are mutually exclusive always, but I'm just trying to make a good point here. Despite cries to make this Canada's January 6th, in a way, the convoy is more effective than January 6th in terms of the evolution of valid political action. It's pushed the boundary on what is deemed as acceptable and even possible for large-scale occupations and supply line blockades in a major North American urban setting. People who would never consider themselves militant are now involved in multiple border-crossing blockades that's cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And to get to this point, so many things need to happen. COVID isolation offered fertile ground for people's politics to unknowingly slide more to the extreme. The many in-person connections that help prevent people from falling prey to conspiratorial thinking ceased to exist. General frustration at Trudeau and the perceived notion of liberalism and elitism has been steadily growing since 2015, and all that mounted up frustration is now being released, and as a result, the invisible Overton window of acceptable political action has shifted right in regular conservatives' minds. And a movement like this is hard to dissolve. Police actions have the chance of escalating the situation and elongating people's willingness to protest. And even if more mandates get removed, that doesn't mean the protest will stop either. Removing the Alberta mandates didn't stop the Coots border blockade, for instance. Because, you know, even if all the mandates in Canada get rescinded, which, which they won't and which they shouldn't, but even if they did, that would still leave the U.S.'s vaccine border requirements, which are preventing unvaccinated truckers from entering the states anyway. Similar tactics and protests inspired by the Canadian convoy have broken out overseas in recent weeks. The convoy and blockade-inspired protests in New Zealand have led to frequent clashes with police outside New Zealand's parliament building for the past two weeks. French protesters formed their own freedom convoy against the government's vaccine mandates. The convoy converged on the Champs-Élysées in Paris on February 2nd, where protesters were met by 7,000 police members and tear gas. Unlike Canada, where the government failed to stop a blockade at the U.S. border, French authorities got way ahead of this protest by stopping at least 500 vehicles before they even got to Paris. Only a few dozen cars made it to the Champs-Élysées, and the police ticketed 300 protesters who were present at the demonstration. Protests against government coronavirus restrictions have caught on in Europe and other parts of the world in recent days, but they remained more subdued than the Canadian demonstrations. A convoy of about 500 vehicles, mostly from France, were barred from entering Brussels of just a few days ago, leaving several hundred protesters to gather on foot at a city square instead. Another convoy of several hundred vehicles blocked access to the seat of the Netherlands government in The Hague on February 12th. And of course, many political figures in the US are really trying to get a convoy-esque protest kicked off here in the United States. Tucker Carlson and Fox News in general has covered the convoy non-stop, giving it tons and tons of support. 
Tucker has said that the Canadian trucker convoy is the single most successful human rights protest in a generation. Senator Rand Paul said that he hopes the truckers come to America and specifically to clog up cities. At least nine members of Congress, all Republicans, have all publicized their support for the convoy participants on Twitter. Self-appointed organizers for a U.S.-based convoy have found quick support from conservative outlets. U.S. convoy organizer Brian Brace has been making the rounds on Fox News, sitting down with Carlson, as well as the network's Fox and Friends morning show. Brace says that he hopes to organize a cross-country convoy from California to Washington, D.C., starting around March 4th. Routes to converge on D.C. from across the country are being planned, while the group's Telegram channel is actively soliciting volunteers and donations of items like tents, generators, and PA systems. I kind of hope people on the left can look at the tactics being used in Canada, some that have worked and some that have faltered, but in terms of like anti-capitalist action, you can't do much better than causing hundreds of millions of dollars in losses to international trade between two of the biggest countries in the world, right? Now, no protest movement can be replicated, but any movement can be analyzed, and that can inform how folks approach future movements as they spontaneously arise. And I, at the very least, hope you have a better idea now of how only a few thousand people can totally choke out a major city. Because we've talked about this possibility before, you know, a group of people overwhelming local law enforcement and taking over and shutting down a sizable portion of a popular metropolitan area, not to mention simultaneously blocking off supply lines, trade routes, and international border crossings. The evolution of these medium-scale anti-government resistance tactics is something we all should be paying attention to as the political tensions continue to rise right outside our doorstep. Because it's always too late when you realize the call is coming from inside the house. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. Welcome to Burger Yippee. Would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won. Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing high five casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Whoa! <laughs> I won again. I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your high five moment today? Only at highfivecasino.com. High five casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High five casino. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. What are you looking for in a new smart TV? 4K picture quality? High quality and immersive sound? A sleek design? All of those are givens, but only the new Roku Pro Series has all of those and the Roku Streaming Experience, an award-winning OS. Get fast, easy access to all your apps like iHeart, where you can stream all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts all day, and regular, all-inclusive trips to Roku City. The new Roku Pro Series, a smart TV built by the streaming pros. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, 
LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 